Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. Today, I am joined by Kirsten F. Latham and repeat guest Brenda Cowan. Kirsten and Brenda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jonathan. To get started, for those who don't know you both, could you each tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Maybe we'll start with Kirsten. Yeah, sure. I think that I basically have to start off by saying I've been associated with museums in some way my entire life, but professionally for about 35 years, which I know is hard to believe because, you know, I'm really only 30. So I've been involved in some way working in museums. I was a professor of museum studies for 12 years. And then a couple of years ago, I decided to make a complete change and become the president and CEO of a living history museum complex in Ohio. And that's what I'm doing right now. Wow. Awesome. How about you, Brenda? I am definitely not 30 years old, as Kirsten jokes, but we're on a similar trajectory. I likewise have in the area of 35 years as well, professionally in museums, beginning in education and being on the floor with visitors. And I was in practice for many years at children's museums, actually, and then in design firms. And I'm currently a professor of exhibition and experience design at Fashion Institute of Technology there in their School of Graduate Studies. And I think that's the simplest summation of me. And Brenda, you are also a repeat guest. We love repeat guests. Your first appearance here on Making the Museum was episode 18, I'll have you know, which was Learning from Matters of Experience. That is a must-listen, dear listener, after you're done with this, flip right over to episode 18 and give that a listen, and you can binge Brenda. Oh, right. dear. You've been warned. That's what I'm going to do. So I assume everyone's <laughs> going to do that. My favorite side question, how did you each get into this business? Kirsten, you said you've been, I'm no mathematician, but you said you've been working in museums since you were negative yeah. five years old. How did that begin? I think it's a, a family full of people who worked in or around museums. My uncle was worked at the Detroit Institute of Arts. My dad was across the street at the Center for Creative Studies. So like my weekends were always filled with one of those two. I had parents who were really interested in the arts. And then when I was 18, I took advantage of that relationship and started an internship in the ancient arts department at the Detroit Institute of Arts. And then from there, just it just kept going. I was always doing something in museums, whether it was an internship, an actual job, professoring about it or now running one. I like professor as a verb. <laughs> and, and Brenda, what's your superhero origin story? Oh my goodness. Very much so not a superhero origin story. Quite on the, the contrary to Kirsten's origins, my families did not go to museums. I grew up, unfortunately, with folks who thought that museums were for special people and people who were very educated and a part of a social class that we were not. And it it means that I never really thought about museums at all until I was practicing to become an art teacher in the ripe old age of 2021. 20, yeah. And as a part of that, I was incredibly fortunate to do a brief stint learning about museum education, this fascinating thing called museum education and it was 
an epiphany. All kinds of bells went off. And I thought, how can I not have been a part of this whole world called museums before? And everything sparked from there. And being in education for many years stopped being enough. I wanted to be in education and in exhibitions. And I started a lot of work in teams and team development at Brooklyn Children's Museum, which, you know, as a place was also an epiphany. And from there, that wasn't enough. I needed to be a part of creating the exhibitions from the design firm perspective. So created a design firm. And then I wanted to do more. I wanted to work for National Park Service. And it just, there was just never enough. This is just the most ripe profession in the world and there's never an end to all the things that you can do so there you go i'm I'm making up for a lost childhood of non-museum visits (laughs) wow i guess i had a lost childhood of that too i've never really thought about it okay great so we've got some great origin stories here we've got family fate and we've got multiple epiphanies i like that Uh, Let's get right into our episode for today because there's something special going on here that you two have been up to, and it's in the title of our episode. Today's episode is Flourishing in Museums, the new book with Kirsten F. Latham and Brenda Cowan. So there is a new book out there, and before we get into the list, I just want to ask a couple things about the book. When, what are the dates of all of the different versions of the book? Paperback, Kindle, hardcover, where can you get them? Can you get them? I have my own copy that I'm making my way through, but what's the deal for folks who are listening and would like to grab this thing as they should? The publisher is Rutledge Taylor and Francis, and the book is certainly available through them. I'm pretty sure you can also Google it and get it through Amazon. And all versions are available. Dear listeners, you can get a hard copy, you can get a paperback, and which is, I'll just say, considerably less expensive. And you much can get prettier. E- and it's prettier. Yes. <laughs> I and you can get the e-version as well. So all is up and available. Is it the kind of thing that if you if someone wanted to get hundreds of them to give away that they could? There's no, uh, oh, there's no sure. restocking problem. That's a, that's kind of stuff. Okay, that's a great <laughs> idea. I, I just suggest wanna, that highly. Yeah. yeah. You always want to anchor high, right? You want to propose to people, oh, you should get 100. And when they don't want to do that, you yeah. say, oh, then get yeah. two instead. And then they'll do that. But if you started with one, then never get two. <laughs> anyway, I Very read that nice. in some other book recently. Anyway, new book is out. Dear listener, run and grab that. And if you're not convinced that you should do that <laughs> yet, you soon will be, because we have a list that's drawn from that book, Flourishing in Museums. Couldn't be a better time for that topic in the world today. We have six points to go over if you would like to keep track, dear listener, as you are walking the dog, doing the dishes, or taking constant notes like I do. Number one, flourishing starts with intention and means living and working with an abundance perspective. That is such a wonderful statement. And reading through the book, I get a sense of what that all means. But I did have to readjust my head while I was reading to be able to really understand where that's coming from. It's deeper than it looks. Who would like to kick us off with a little bit more about that subject? You you all are the editors of this book. You had a bunch of authors, more than two dozen of them. But you know the subject matter real well. Who will kick us off? 
I, I can start, but Brenda jump in anytime because uh, we work really well together and filling yeah. in for each other. So just so you know, yeah, flourishing, just the word people say, what is that? And that is, I find myself still having a hard time just defining what flourishing is. And if you Google the word flourishing, or not really Google, if you look into the scientific literature on flourishing, you'll see scientists can't quite agree exactly what this means yet. So, so I think, you know, I think it for us, we are talking about what flourishing is by saying that it starts with doing it on purpose. It starts with wanting flourishing. It starts with, with the desire to make a decision on purpose to help people to flourish. And what that means is taking a particular kind of a perspective. And that perspective is what we're calling here an abundance perspective. What does that mean? It, it can involve uh, many different things. I see it as something that's about the world is full, seeing the, through a lens that the world is full rather than empty, seeing through a lens that's appreciative and appreciating what's there, that the maybe the clouds are in the sky today, but look at how beautiful the way that one ray of light is hitting the ground. And then strengths-based, just focusing on strengths rather than on deficits. So I think that that's where it starts. Bren, do you want to yeah, fill in there? Yeah, we get a lot of interesting thoughts and even pushback about the meaning of flourishing, the meaning of working with a, a positive mindset, which is a part of this. And even when we were working initially with the publisher, there was a bit of, we can't expect people to be happy all the time. And this is not about being happy all the time. In fact, the flourishing very much so is about being able to take on with specific intentions and intentionality, the challenges and the struggles that come with being alive. And we'll talk more, I'm sure, about those kinds of things in our own profession. But to flourish is to be able to genuinely work and operate with intention and towards very specific things. And it also, I, it involves a tremendous amount of hope. And Kirsten, would you agree I'm going to throw in the word aspiration? What do you sure. think? That yeah. sounds right. Yeah. 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 I think that's tightly wound with hope. Yeah. Yeah. And you both used a, a word that I uh, found in the book in a number of places, which for me summed it up a little bit, which was uh, positive. I'm going to say positivity. There was a caution in the book. Uh, we don't mean this other word that's like positivity. I don't remember what that was, <laughs> but I hope I'm not using it. I can tell you what that is. Oh, uh, we won't. We will not. We won't breathe. A, we won't breathe a, a word of that word. But Kirsten, you were talking about, hey, it's a cloudy day, but look at that one ray of sunshine. Or these things all are not so good, but let's be grateful for the things that are things. So anyway, that, is that, is that, is that yeah. a way of looking at this about positivity, glass half full in all regards? I think it goes beyond the glass half full. That's probably what we know best, That, but that maybe simplifies it a bit too much. If you So Martin Seligman, if you've ever heard of him, he was the founder of Positive Psychology, and he says that flourishing is a state we create. So you, so yes, the glass half full, the glass half empty could definitely be that. It's your perspective. It's your framing. It's what, and that's what we mean by your intention. It's something you choose. And Seligman would say that you choose it. You choose to see it this way. 
So to be clear, this isn't an academic book. It is a scholarly book. It is not a page goes by without a citation, a, a note, a reference, giant bibliography in the back, all the things you might expect. It's very readable. All the authors are very readable. You all have chapters. You're very readable. But it is based in the literature. So when you say that you're talking about positive psychology, I always like to use peanut butter cup metaphors. For some reason, positive psychology and museums combined together make this yes. peanut butter cup that's called flourishing in museums. It's, Love it. It feels like the the application, <laughs> I must need a snack, the, ap- the application of of a very established, mature, and well-known, very full, fully staffed branch of psychology, yeah. which is positive psychology being applied to what we do in the museum. So it's not it's not a woo-woo thing. This is a... No. Or, no. These are cite- these, you're using citations. I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually really important. I would not call this an academic book. In fact, Brenda and I were very particular about the fact that this is a book that has is both academic and for practice and personal. And that drove the publishers crazy (laughs) because they want you to pick. They want it to be an academic book or a practice book or a memoir or something. But we made it, we tried to make it all of that. And if you read the book all the way through, you'll see pieces of all of that. And I, so I think that's really important. But what you stated here is that it is grounded research, is very grounded in research. And actually, you probably would see a lot more citations if I actually were able to do citations and get my word count proper at the end of this. What we had to do actually is not fully cite every single thing, but give you the bibliography at the end, because this is, it's a tremendous amount of research. I can't tell you how much bigger my library got. My uh, part of my job was to work really carefully with Kirsten and keep the citation count down. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those of you who know her uh, or haven't <laughs> read her yet, Kirsten is a very science-minded scholar who is also this tre- tremendous practitioner and her ability to link together scholarly references is incredible. So a lot of my job was making sure that we were rooted in science and making sure that we were interpreting everything through illustrative example, which turned out to be really easy with the delightful authors that we were fortunate to be able to work with. But I just, I love that you keep pointing out, Jonathan, the citations, because, woo honey, it could have been... (laughs) <laughs> a lot more even. Yeah, and forgive me for slapping the label <laughs> academic book on it. That's my sort of Neanderthal uh, definition. Of, there's the writing I do in the sister newsletter to this podcast, which is not academic. You will not be finding citations or bibliographies there. That would take too much time. It's so anytime, anytime I see that, yes, yeah, so that's a very much practice or possibly a memoir, maybe as a memoir. <laughs> but that's, that, that's all something that, is beyond my ability to do on a weekly basis. So uh, I think of everything else as being academic or scholarly, but you point out correctly. And some of yeah. the, there's more than two dozen uh, authors and some of the authors are very much from practice. They're people who own a manufacturing company and they're, you know, they're not as citation heavy as someone like uh, John Falk, who was one I, of the authors at the end of the book, got some rock stars in there from the museum business. In addition yeah. to yourselves, you're also both you know, rock stars. And it was really important, I think, to me, I mean, this is what started 
I, I started this process of getting this book together before I met Brenda. And it was really important to me to synthesize and consolidate the enormous research out there for museum and cultural people. That That is what I wanted to do because I know what museum work is like. I know that you don't have the time to read the new library of books that I now have. So I wanted to do that for people by consolidating all of that, the most current research on these particular topics down and distill it and put it into one book. And then if you're interested, you can go to that big, long, crazy bibliography and look more up if you'd like. But it really, that's why you see the sections. There's these section sections on the intentions, like mm -hmm. courage and gratitude and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And they are painful on my end, not yours, I hope, a painful painfully consolidated because I had to leave things out. And that was also Brenda's job was to keep me <laughs> down to 2,000 to 3,000 words in each of those sections. So it was not easy, but that is the purpose of doing this, really, I think. I think, too, to, to put it out there with all honesty, as Kirsten and I met and started to work together, um, there were a lot of war stories. There were a, a lot of times when we were just sharing stories from practice of our own, of colleagues, beloved colleagues of ours. And it's, it's tough work working in museums. Sometimes you're dealing with really tough content. Sometimes interpreting your content is really complex. Working with audiences, being front of house staff is not, it's not for the weak. <laughs> it really isn't. And it can also be your greatest joy as well, I find. But there have been moments where working in museums can almost feel like, gosh, do I work in the Peace Corps? Like, I feel like I'm making <laughs> great change and I'm taking on such great things. And it's really tough. And we hear stories of burnout and some stress and stuff like that. And just to be fully honest with you. And so as we were working together on really translating flourishing into museum practice we very much so wanted to keep that in mind we wanted to keep this real and grounded in those kinds of ways and also to be able to enable people to think realistically and honestly about the work of being in museums and in a way though that makes you feel like and know that you can do well and feel well you know, um, as, as much as much as possible. I don't know if you intended to do it, but you just gave us a great segue to point number two. Perfecto. <laughs> of course you would. You edited the book. So point number two here, I hope people take note of this. Healthy museums have a growth mindset internally and externally. And that means with staff, visitors, communities, and the profession, a growth mindset internally and externally to be healthy, would like to kick us off on that one. I think yep. I don't Go for know, it. all of these catch my eye. Every one of them yeah. get better and better. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. I think the what we're doing here is we're starting with the notion that museums are ecosystems, and that we quite often, at least in the literature, we fall heavily on talking about our visitors, and really the whole ecosystem is what makes museums. It's so it's all of your teams that are working inside the museum. So your internal, external, I guess we're referring to all these communities that are outside of our daily practice. So visitors and our communities and the profession itself. And so it's important, I think, as we talk about 
healthy museums about growth mindset, which typically is an individual term, that we're talking about such a thing at all these levels, in all these ways, in all parts of the ecosystem. And if one part of the ecosystem is not healthy, um, it's just like a human body. If there's a part of the human body that's not healthy, the whole body reacts. So it's you must have all of them worked on in order to be healthy. I'm thinking as well about even just what you were talking about, Jonathan, about is it scholarly or is it practice heavy? Is it memoir? And in a way, working in museums is also all of those things. You are, and, and it's a very holistic way of thinking, which is what this book is about and putting forth that we must think holistically because like Kirsten just described, we are operating holistically, whether we like it or not. And we put forth the notion that you must always think about yourself. We are creating our own narratives when we work in museums and we need to take care of ourselves, which is in the book quite a bit. And we need to be really mindful of how it is that we work with, operate with impact and are impacted by others, that we are always operating in relation to others and, and scripting narratives with our colleagues and our stakeholders in museums themselves, I think, write their own narratives. The whole system, the way that they work with communities, the people who live, work, visit, all around the museum and from everywhere. These are living organisms. And so operating holistically with this growth mindset, like Kirsten was saying, has to at one and the same time happen with an understanding of all of these interrelationships. I wonder, do you think that, obviously I'm talking with the editors of, uh, about a book called Flourishing in Museums, but is positive psychology equally applicable to other realms a and B, do you think it's especially applicable to museums? That Those are probably total softball questions, but what do you think? Let's back up a second. The book is, is really founded on more than positive psychology because there are other positive disciplines. Positive psychology just happens to be the one that kind of started it all. It's also built on uh, contemplative science. We may not call it out as that, but some of a lot of what where we derive things is this merging of neuroscience and contemplative traditions. I think that saying that, it, asking, so you asked, is it, can positive psychology do this with other professions? Absolutely already has. There's something called positive tourism, believe it or not. There's positive education. There's positive journalism, although they don't like that name, so they called it something else I can't remember. It's growing. And actually, when I started this project in 2017, that hadn't happened yet. But all of a sudden, there's now, well, there was maybe one or two Oxford hand, handbooks, one on, if you've heard of Oxford handbooks, they produce those when there's like something to talk about that's really important and they want to consolidate it into this gigantic volume. And positive psychology, I think, was the first one. And there were only like two or three when this I started this. And now there, I don't even know how many there are now, but there's at least a dozen there's positive humanities was one of the latest ones. So it's already happening, which is super awesome, which is why I thought, why not positive museology? So you're not 
you're not out on the you're not out on the edge. You're not like out on the total frontier here, putting together a peanut butter cup that has no precedent. <laughs> this kind of thing has right. ample precedent, and you're building on it for the museum industry. Yeah. So, how about that question of is it a particularly applicable to museums? I feel like it is most of the way through the book. Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, yeah. I, I I think Brenda and I remember she both of us early on talking about this. Holy Toledo, this makes sense. Like, why isn't it out there? And so, yeah, and that's why we're doing this. And you'll, you're probably noticing also that over the last few years that you're hearing more and more things that sound familiar to this. We're hearing a lot more, even just language in museums about thriving and about vitality and about ecosystems and about, I mean, we're hearing this more, but really five years ago, I don't think that was as common. I could be yeah, wrong. So, well, I think that it's, also an outgrowth of the past many years where museums are really having to confront themselves and yeah. being called to, in some cases, museums are really being held to account for their own histories, their practices, even their policies, and the way in which they handle their own materials, their collections. And there is so much positive growth happening with these really difficult subjects and in these really challenging ways. And I think in a way, the complexity that museums are now facing, some kicking and screaming perhaps, and others just genuinely flourishing, growing and spreading their wings. I think that people are recognizing that you can only do the hard work truly successfully, I believe deeply, from a flourishing mindset, from an abundance-oriented mindset, and from a deep belief that this is posi possible and this is necessary. I'm having a flashback right now. When I was a kid, I was in the sort of wilderness encounter thing, and we were given this manual that was the, the manual of emergency situations, what to do when the unexpected happens and you're, you're trapped by a by a bear with a stick of dynamite and an avalanche or something. And, uh, All that. <laughs> and I remember that the very first thing that they that was in the book uh, that they said is, in order to survive any unforeseen circumstance, the first thing you need is a positive mental attitude. If you do not have PMA, <laughs> then you will not survive bear, dynamite, or avalanche. Wow. And so, yeah, I think the- You can uh, summarize the whole book. Okay, point number three. Museum people must do self-care and also offer care and support to staff, communities, colleagues, and the system itself. We've talked about what flourishing is, abundance mindset. We've talked about the fact that it's internal and external. Now we're talking about self-care and support. Say more about self-care. People tell me I'm supposed to do self-care, and I'm not always entirely sure what that means. Maybe I'm in denial. Let's talk about it from the perspective, two different perspectives, one from yourself, you, and one from, say, you're an organization, a, a museum. You've probably heard over and over again lately, because I feel like this is something that's in the air a lot, that you can't take care of others if you don't take care of yourself first, right? So yeah, the oxygen of, mass uh, metaphor is the one that you hear it, yeah, Exactly. Time. And it's like a little, sadly, it's getting a little overused, but it's so important. And I have, in particular, been very concerned about museum staff for a number of years, probably 
mm, gosh, probably 20 because I was in the museum field in practice before I became a professor. And then, of course, I started training people to go in who would go in and then get burned out. And I would I would see this pattern. I think I I have a great concern for caring for museum staff. We are not going to produce care for or allow care for, enable care for our communities and our visitors if we don't care for ourselves. It's just, we're just not going to be able to do it. So it really starts there. And that's what I'm, that's sort of my project here at my current job is to start there. The obvious thing from outside of in the community, maybe the board, that sort of a thing is, you know, you start with visitors, you get more visitors in and you do more things to get visitors. Mm-mm, I back up. I think the first thing to do is to actually look inside, make the system inside work, make sure people are caring for each other, build a system where not only self-care is okay, but people are caring for each other, and then we can care for our visitors and then our communities and that sort of thing. So for me, that that's what I mean by self-care, is the oxygen mask. <laughs> and there's some really specific things that folks can do as well to really take a look at this. Kirsten, I'm thinking of in the conclusion of our book, we put forth a handy dandy, hopefully a handy dandy chart of stuff you can do to- At the end, in the last chapter. At the, yeah, in the conclusion. And we talk about practices in balancing orienting and inquiring and this is for yourself as well as for your whole institution and it includes things like activities that you can do that can enhance your receptivity or your curiosity perseverance is another one all of these activities if you will are specific things that you can do to care for yourself in the museum setting and that you'll you're also able to do to take care of others in the museum in the broader community. I was wondering when I saw that myself, I was thinking I'd like to turn that into a checklist. Is that available in any other medium? Does this book have a website or a digital uh, handbook companion or anything like that? Because I, I wanted to take it out of that last yeah. second to last page or whatever and then you know, Website under construction. Website Stay. under construction. Okay, you heard it here. <laughs> All right. Guess what it's called? Flourishing in Museum. Dot something. Uh, okay. Yep. All yeah. right. <laughs> All right. We like it when we're getting the word out on some new things. That's terrific. Also, speaking of the last chapters, we'll do a halftime show in just a second here, but I also very much appreciated <clears throat> that one of the chapters offered a, a, a category of thing that I have never seen before, but I was absolutely overjoyed to see talking about peanut butter cups. These were things that combined museums and dad jokes because <laughs> part of flourishing is just is just straight up fun, right? Yeah. That's part of it. There's yeah. two chapters that are just about like, why are yep. we so serious? Uh-huh. We just have some fun and belly laughs will cure a lot of things. And so Bad. there were some, I'm a dad joke, I, as I'm required to be by law, I'm a dad joke aficionado. And so uh, a couple of dad jokes I learned from your book were hilarious. <laughs> Here's a dad joke. Vandals have attacked the Origami Museum. We'll keep you updated as the story unfolds. <laughs> we that's have to just... shout out. Yeah, Christina for word on. No, nope, that's Kathy Hamaker and Eli Oh, Wood. that's Kathy. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Our yeah. other, yes. Chapter, chap, get the book. Go yeah. to chapter 26. Yeah. Uh, last yeah. one. Last one. This has <laughs> got to be a classic. I used to go to the Museum of Bread, but it got stale after a while. <laughs> 
right, here's a quick halftime show, quick station identification. If you're just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also write a review in Apple Podcasts. And thank you to everybody out there who has made this show a five-star podcast on both of those platforms. If you have a one-star review to give, just give it to somebody else. You can also just tell a friend to check out makingthemuseum.com for everything about this podcast and the newsletter I was mentioning, which is non-academic. Now back to the show. Today I'm talking with Kirsten F. Latham and Brenda Cowan about Flourishing in Museums, a new book that they edited that has just come out and is available in every form in many places. We've talked about our first three points. That must mean that point number four is next, and there it is. Point number four, to flourish, we must go bold with change. Addressing what's uncomfortable, deconstruct dysfunctional systems, maybe even redefine what a museum is. So we're talking about going, but we talked about self-care, we talked about internal, external, we defined flourishing. Now we're taking it to the streets, going bold with change. How bold is bold? What does the book tell us about uncomfortable things, dysfunctional things, and redefining museums? Walking it like we talk it is pretty tough. Because this sounds really good, right? Doesn't this, it just sounds so wonderful and let's all grow towards the sun and and a great metaphor that Kirsten loves to use. But it's really difficult stuff. And when Kirsten and I were thinking about this particular point, we did think of, there are some great, if you will, living examples. And I'm going to talk in a second about the Rubin Museum. And But first, I want to put Kirsten on the spot. And uh, hey there, you want to talk a little bit about love leadership? Oh, yeah. So I have a chapter in the book on what I call love leadership. And this, so when I, before I started as the CEO here, I taught a leadership class in museums at Michigan State. And I discovered that there's something out there called love leadership. And I thought, oh my gosh, what the heck is this? So it it comes from this notion that there's basically two ways to lead in the world, through love and through fear. And I am not a person who necessarily likes binaries, but in this case, I've put it to the test to try to see if that really works. And I really think it does. And you'll see, if you get the book now, you'll see there's a, a table that gives you kind of a an idea of love versus fear and how that might work. But basically, love leadership is really truly about leading people as a human being, leading human beings. And there's a lot of forgiveness involved. There's a lot of listening, communication, transparency. And then back to that, that notion of intention, it's, that's in there as well. So I intend to lead with love. So here, where I work now, I had been teaching this to my students, and I said, okay, I'm going to teach it. In theory, I got to practice it now. And I have been practicing every day for a year and a half, love leadership, by trying to remember what that means and trying to figure it out as I go as well. And this is why I said that I started within here. Well, I started internal. I started with taking care of people. Um, 
And it kind of might go back and forth with care. I sometimes I think that love and flourishing are the same thing, but I can't haven't quite figured that out yet. But it's about enabling people to flourish. I'm trying to train a whole, I guess I could call it train. I'm trying to teach and mentor a whole passel of leaders here to also lead with love. So spreading it. And so that for me, that feels bold. I guess my chapter is on courage and having courage. And I remember thinking, I did some really hard things about two weeks ago. It was really difficult. And I remember I, I came home after the worst day was done. And my husband was asking me about it. And I was like, okay, now I get why that chapter was in courage. My chapter on love. Now I get it. I, I did, but this I just lived it. <laughs> was, the, was the love and fear, I remember there's a, I think this must have been your chapter. I remember there was a moment in a book where the author, I think perhaps you, said that at a moment in your life when you needed it, you were listening to an audiobook. Yeah. And the person in the audiobook said there are only two forces in life, love and fear. Okay. And I was like, Oh, that that caught my ear because normally it's love and hate. But the opposite of love turns out not to be hate. Yeah. Love and fear. Do I, I, have I got you pigeonholed the right way? That is it. That's Jenny Lee. She and this is she's a, a yoga theorist and a yoga practitioner, and she writes some really nice books, but that's where it came from. Yeah, I was listening to her book on tape. I love that we've got, uh, we're on Making the Museum, and we're talking about yoga theorists. This feels, the tension (laughs) is draining out of my body. Uh, Maybe it's because we record on Friday afternoons, I don't know. I'm just, I'm looking around, and everything's great, and it's all very positive. Wow. You know, it's terrific. The listeners, I think we need to start a new podcast. I think it needs to be called flourishing in museums and i think we need to get each author as a guest and we need to have 26 (laughs) episodes i don't know because i'm (laughs) just really i'm just really you know what what do you what's your take on boldness brenda going bold with change it's very appropriate that we're talking about yogic thinking and practices because when like the rest of the profession heard just about a week ago or so that the Rubin Museum was closing its its physical doors. What a you just worked in quite a news hook. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I sure did. And and so as I heard about it and as my heart was in the process of sinking into my stomach, because it genuinely has always been one of my very favorite over over these past two decades, it has been one of my very favorite places to go. My daughter goes there all the time. I bring guests and visitors there. So my students, we work on projects with them. So it's a real heart space for me and for many people. And with the news that came out that they were closing the bricks and mortar, and I began to very quickly learn more and listen to where they're coming from and what's what they're in the process of doing and what some of their aspirations and hopes are, I thought, holy cow, this could right, be right there in our chapter on courage and care and optimism and <laughs> transformation. Good job, Brenda. And even gratitude. How about gratitude? Yep. And even <laughs> delight. And so, dear listeners, those, by the way, are the six primary forms of intentions that the book uh, is divided into. And the I am not here to be a spokesperson for the Rubin, but as an appreciator and lover of that museum, what is so incredible is that they are completely challenging what it means to be a museum in a lot of our conventional ways of thinking. 
and they are very much so still going to be a museum, call themselves a museum, operate as a museum through traveling exhibitions, through a large digital presence, and as I understand it, events and different forms of programming. And they very much so have embraced the idea that they are going through a metamorphosis and a transformation and doing so by indeed going very bold. And in some ways, I was also thinking about the definition of what is a museum that, that came out from ICOM not terribly long ago. And the idea that they put forth that a museum is a permanent thing. And I wonder, cheese. I wonder if this challenges that notion and I thought the Rubin embraces Buddhist philosophy and practices, certainly in its interpretation and its subject matter, and which is about impermanent. And so I could just go on this whole spiral, this delicious spiral of how this particular institution is embracing all of the things that we're talking about in this book. How's that for a plug for the Rubin? That's what you said you weren't a Rubin spokesperson. I beg to differ. I, yeah, I think they they had a they had a hard task before them for many years. That's not a, a location in Chelsea. Not I. Not a guaranteed success location for a cultural institution like that. Big facility, a lot of carrying costs. Pandemic. Yeah, it takes the wind out of everybody's sails, especially if you're not one of the top ten museums in any given market, and you're not also one of the Museums are run by a single person, but you're somewhere in the grade in between, et cetera, et cetera. I think if you're if you are going to redefine what a museum is, a AAM accreditation requires that you are oriented around a physical location. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, that you're yep. a nonprofit and that you, I think you, the implication is you have to have stuff to get accredited, or if you do, you have to take good care of it. So being entirely virtual kind of takes care of a lot of those things. In all fairness, now the then is still going to have a collection. There'll be a, a significant loaning institution, as I understand it. They'll be caring for and preserving and, and all of that kind of stuff. But it, it is definitely a transformation. And it's, I think, going to really push all kinds of definitions. I appreciate you bringing up the AAM accreditation definitions as well. But it's bold, to your question. It is a bold example. And you go, Ruben. They bet they have to. What's the... And you have to sometimes, yeah. What's the the alternative? I think the industry should be thankful to them because I think they're shaking it up. And that's what we mean by bold. We need, this needs shaken up. We've been doing the same thing over. And the latest generation thinks that, often thinks that what we're doing is new. And I don't mean necessarily now. I just mean, I've seen several generations and each generation's this fight and that fight. And then here it comes again. It's like these waves of the same thing, but it's not hitting the core and the core needs to be questioned and the core needs to be different. And we just keep doing the same things. So doing things like that, I think is really important. And I think the Rubin is going to set an example that's going to be super helpful. And it is for us, transformation is one of the intentions that we talk about. Being bold with transformation is right on. What does that mean? If your subject matter is a is about or around impermanence, what does impermanence mean? That's fascinating. Because And I do know a lot of Buddhist material. I'm not Buddhist myself, but I do. I'm a, a student of learning these sorts of things. And I think 
Yeah. How I wondered when I visited Brenda, we went for Designing for Empathy this fall. Yeah. And I wondered, how does a museum that is about this subject matter have such a swanky space? That feels strange. There was something weird there, right? How does any museum have a swanky space? Well, that's true, Not from right? gate revenue. From another <laughs> right. revenue source in the pie chart. Yeah. Uh, and it has to do with why yeah. a museum about that topic would have the name Ruben. Anyway. Yeah, yeah true. digress yeah. again. Uh, point number five. Flourishing takes many forms for the book's authors who address war, sexual abuse, discrimination, and regret, as well as fun, playfulness, and magic. A lot of things to try to grapple with to make sure your museum flourishes, whether you're the Reuben or not. Would one of you like to tackle the bad things and leave the good <laughs> stuff to the other? <laughs> or would you like to... I'm tempted to do a good cop, bad cop thing. When I, whenever I have two guests, I want to do something like that. But the, the funny thing is that I don't think you can take one example and make it either bad or good. Yeah, How about agreed. that? Kirsten and I can both be good cop and bad cop. <laughs> Each of our authors has been, gosh, to 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 pick out any one chapter is just so difficult. It, it's like there really are no favorite children in here. But I think about Michigan State University, team of authors who wrote a chapter about the sexual abuse um, incidents that happened on their campus and they created an exhibition about it and they worked with the sister survivors and to create an exhibition that really talked about sexual abuse and it was tough going they were concerned about losing their jobs this was the very museum within the very university that was subject to to lawsuits and while it was happening while it was happening, while it was all unfolding. Mm -hmm. And you want to talk about courage, and which is the chapter that they're in. They really took on this subject, and it was fresh. And they were endlessly having to think about the meaning of doing this work while it's unfolding. And while there is still so much uncertain about even the health and well-being um, of the people who were impacted, of the women who were impacted, and... I think that their chapter is such an incredible story of what courage means and also how it is that they were able to raise awareness, how they were able to open up other people who were not a part of this particular situation, but who themselves in their own lives had suffered similar abuses and were suddenly able to talk about it. Kirsten, let me toss it over to you. Do you have one or one or two that you that are coming to mind? Yeah, I. So I tend to love to laugh. So I tend to gravitate <laughs> towards the fun and the humor and the playfulness. And we have in the delight section, we have two chapters in particular. One that's on fun by Christina Fuerta and Helen Diviak, and then one on humor by Ely Wood and Kathy Hamaker. And what's fascinating to me about those two is that I don't know that they use, I don't think that they use specific, like they don't have a specific case study or anything. They're talking about what is fun, what is humor, how does it fit, why don't we do it, why are we so serious? But what's really interesting is how different those two are, those two, those two chapters, which I find really fascinating because maybe we like just take all the, we take all of fun and all of joyful things and lump them together, but we can have a ton of words for all the bad things that happen in the world. 
And what they're doing is they parse it out in this beautiful way that we can read a chapter on fun and go, oh my gosh, how is this so different from a chapter on humor in museums? And then give us ideas on how to use them, give us strategies, fun <laughs> strategy, humor strategy, playfulness st strategy. Dad jokes. See, you already uh -huh. used them. Yeah, you actually, you that already fun, used them. That was fun strategy number seven. I picked that right up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I have to tell you, that chapter, I I told Brenda this the other day, that I, have, I just go back and read it once in a while and just giggle out loud like you can't believe. I've read it so many times and I still laugh so hard at that chapter. So if nothing else... You know, everyone's going to want to go out and at least read that chapter because I can't even see. I was laughing out of professional respect as a dad of course, sure. there. Of course. There's, and there's a science which they break down as well to belly laughing. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. right. That's what right. it does in your, your body. It does. Get your vagus health, nerve healthful. going, all that. Let's wrap up with uh, point number six here. Positive museology is a fluid and developing project that aims to change how museums function and the way they are seen in society, fluid and developing project. Mm -hmm. Is that, are you hinting at the upcoming website and, uh, you know, uh, book number two? What, what no. do you mean by so fluid much and bigger than that, Jonathan? So much bigger than that. My hope is that this book starts something in museums. My hope, and not, not because I, want you to go out and buy the book and make it sell a ton. But what I want is I want a movement in museums. I want positive museology to be something that people are saying, gee, there's a there is something that we can do. We can join all those others out there, positive tourism, positive education and positive psychology and 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 we can be a part of that. I but the fluid and developing what's important here is that I this is not done. What we put together in this book is snapshotted in time because it has to be. A book has to be done. It's a document. Documents are fixed. But even as it was going to press, I'm like, oh, I wish I had added this. I mean, Ruben, we were both like, oh, I wish we could have gotten Ruben in this book. So the fluid is, and in even the, the framework, which we didn't really talk about, the framework, the Flourishing Museums framework, it was just we had to settle on something, but it could be something else. And I actually want to invite and challenge anybody out there who's reading this to to help me and Brenda modify it, to help us adapt it, to help us make it better and stronger and what whatever can be the most useful. And I see it as a gigantic community project. I don't see this as my book and Brenda's book or all these authors. I see this as something that that is is a movement that will grow and be different over time. I don't even have anything to add into that. It's really perfect. And it is such a, it's such a living organism. And I experienced this through my teaching and which is just so very much truly like museum work. It really is. And I think that there's also a big role. I personally, I would love to really expand this subject into education as well. And there's just, there's a lot of avenues and no, no future books in mind, I think. <laughs> I anyway, <laughs> resting after this one. You're, you're doing us, you're doing self-care. You forgot to put your oxygen right. mask on first. <laughs> so at any rate, but yes, partnering, hearing from colleagues, 
building the dialogue, that is all very much so wanted by the two of us. All right. Those are all great notes to end on. Uh, I'm going to do a quick recap here. This was our list for today. We were, were talking about Flourishing in Museums, a new book with Kirsten F. Latham and Brenda Cowan. Number one, flourishing starts with intention and means living and working with an abundance perspective. That's our definition. Number two, healthy museums have a growth mindset internally and externally with staff, visitors, communities, and the profession. Number three, museum people must do self-care and also offer care and support to staff, colleagues, communities, and the system itself. Point number four, to flourish, we must go bold with change, address what's uncomfortable, deconstruct dysfunctional systems, and even redefine what a museum is. Number five, flourishing takes many forms for the book's authors who address war, sexual abuse, discrimination, and regret, as well as fun, playfulness, and magic. And number six, positive museology is a fluid and developing project maybe even a community affair that aims to change how museums function and the way they are seen in society, to use Kirsten's words just now, hopefully the beginning of a movement. How did I do? Beautifully. Yeah, absolutely perfect. All right. I'm just editing your editing. I do want to make sure that everybody knows I am almost done with this great new book myself, and dear listener, you should pick up a copy or 100 over 250 pages, more than two dozen chapters, more than two dozen authors, including industry rock stars, such as my guests today, lots of citations, notes, big bibliography, and of course, two great editors. And did I mention uh, dad jokes? So go out and buy it and read it. Kirsten F. Latham and Brenda Cowan, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank it's you been so great. Much. Yeah. So if our dear listeners would like to get in touch with each of you, what's the best way for them to do that? Email, website, LinkedIn, flourishinginmuseums.something? I ha- I actually have a, an email, flourishingmuseums at yahoo.com, that oh, could okay. be specific. Great. That's one. If anybody has to What's another way to get in touch with you, Kirsten? I'm on LinkedIn, but I can't remember my, whatever Just you call it, handle. Look and, look and look up Kirsten, and I'll spell that for you. <laughs> it's probably K-I- KF Latham. Okay. K-I-E-R-S-T-E-N. F is middle edition and Latham is L-A-T-H-A-M on LinkedIn. And Brenda, how about you? How can well, people LinkedIn. get in get in your, your emails and stuff? LinkedIn. Absolutely. Best best route is through LinkedIn for LinkedIn. sure. Brenda, like Brenda, Cowan, C-O-W-A-N. All right. And we'll get some contact info and other stuff and maybe even a link to buy the book. I don't know, in the show notes. Okay. <laughs> I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you would like to get in touch with me or have an idea for the show, go to makingthemuseum.com and hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger, A-L-G-E-R, or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. By the way, this podcast has an older sister. It's a one-minute newsletter by the same name, Making the Museum. One quick insight each time for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros. You can subscribe at makingthemuseum.com. There's a big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Elger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.